0: It's a bit like oils ain't oils, compost ain't
1: compost. Hi, I'm Ellie. And I'm Susie.
0: You're listening to Soils for Life.
1: Each episode, we're bringing you stories about soil, the opportunities in the ground and the challenges above it. So what's the opportunity we're exploring in this episode?
2: Well, Susie, our mantra on this show is that healthy soils are the foundation of resilient agricultural systems but many agricultural practices have for centuries been degrading Australia's soils. These practices are taking away organic matter and nutrients, and they're impacting the ecosystem of living organisms that make soil productive and suitable for growing things in. As a solution to soil and land degradation, compost is not a new concept, but there are so many different ways to approach it. So in this episode, we're breaking it down into two parts.
1: First up, we'll look at how we can close the loop by returning organic waste from the city to the farm. Then, we'll look at the evolution of compost and the innovations that are emerging.
2: Okay, so before we dig into the detail, let's set the scene. We begin with Rhonda and Bill Daly, who farm at Milgadara near Young in New South Wales. And their story was actually featured in a Soils for Life case study earlier this year. It was a life-threatening illness that first led Bill and Rhonda to compost.
3: Bill Daly, I'm from Young in New South Wales. We're a mixed farming operation of 1,100 hectares, merino sheep, prime lambs, and mixed cropping, introducing natural fertilisers, biological inputs and composting into our operation 20-odd years ago has made an immense difference to the landscape.
0: I'm Rhonda Daly. I've lived on Milgadora 45 years, been married to Bill. I was from a farming background on the other side of Young. 20 years ago, I got meningitis, or a near-death experience, which worked out to be a heavy metals poisoning from arsenic, from arsenical sheep dips. And my sister and I used to stand in the paddocks, and it was sort of when the introduction of chemicals was coming, you know, back in the late 50s and 60s, and we used to mark for the plane while the chemicals were being flown over us. We thought it was fun, you know, the plane would dive down on us and we'd have great fun, you know, diving into the crop while it passed over us. But, you know, it has really affected my life.
3: It was a pretty horrendous week or two when she first was told, you know, how sick she really was. But... Our mindset changed. I'd always been concerned about how much agriculture had diversified into a large usage of chemicals and artificial inputs, let's put it that way. And I guess this was just the thing that really told me this is not the best thing for agriculture to be doing it this way. And I
0: received an epiphany that said I needed to heal the soils and help others. And that came as like a lightning bolt to me because... That took me on a completely different path to starting wild Living Soils and understanding how we could actually change and improve our management on the farm, not only for our soils, but also I had a lot of healing to do in my own health and then work out how food is produced, what soils it comes from, nutritional qualities. Rhonda and Bill
1: changed their practices away from using chemical fertiliser inputs, but felt there was something missing. And it was the opportunity in the United States while visiting their daughter that led them to compost.
3: We were using biological inputs, but we always felt there was a missing link.
0: And there was an old guy here in Australia called Don McFarlane. And Don used to take you know tours to America and show them all the biological farmers, the leaders, I suppose, in biological agriculture in America.
3: And when we were able to do that composting course in Ocala, Florida we suddenly said, wow, this is the missing link, the biological and humus build-up link in the soil that just links all our inputs together and creates that structure and healthy soil system. And compost is just a massive part of that.
1: After they discovered their missing link at the compost workshop, Bill and Rhonda wanted to bring what they'd learned
0: back to Australia. It was really just light bulb moments the whole time. And at the end of it, I sort of startled up to him one lunchtime and I said, Edwin, would you like to come to Australia? Anyway, it took us to September 2006. We run our first composting workshop and we had about 130 people at that.
3: The incredible thing about that workshop was that we thought we may get 20 people and they flew from Kananara, they flew from New Zealand, they flew from Mackay, they flew from Perth, and I went, so obviously other people need to know about this too.
2: So what's so special about compost?
1: Well, to find out, we spoke to Eric Love from the Centre for Organic Research and Education, who amongst many things, runs the Compost Awareness Week.
4: You hear panic the plate, but that's not really the cycle. It's paddock, the paddock is the cycle, you've got to get back into the soil, you know, why do we need compost? Soil regeneration, you've got better structure, you've got all organic matter in there, it stimulates the microbial activity which is, you know, quite beneficial. Then you've got that resilience factor. And what compost has, it's got high moisture holding capacity, so the water hangs in. It hangs for quite a considerable amount of time. So. A lot of the um, organic farmers aren't as drought affected. If it goes on for six years, I mean, there's a point at which everybody suffers for that. There's also you know, heat and temperature stabilisation that happens there, that's, uh, that's one of the compost benefits. And it can increase the productivity. So there's a kind of financial benefit there. And then there is the cost benefits and that's like water savings because you've got that moisture holding capacity. That has another effect, because, particularly for irrigators. I mean, it's good for non-irrigators because they you know, they can take advantage of rainfall and it, it uh, hangs onto it. But in terms of irrigators, they save a lot in energy because they don't need to use as much water. It's saving quite a significant amount. So the energy that they use to pump you know, is lowered, so you've got energy reduction. Your chemical input reduction, like um, fertilisers and pesticides, you haven't got the right soil, that runs off and has been running off into our waterways and causing, you know, eutrophication and uh, all sorts of problems there. So that erosion control, you know, by stabilising the soil, that's a, that's a good cost-benefit. Hang on to your topsoil. In terms of your topsoil um, maintenance, there's some key things that, uh, that compost can bring to a farm.
2: Okay, so there's a lot in there. Eric's saying that compost improves soil structure. It also increases the soil's ability to capture and hold water and it has heaps of flow-on benefits too.
1: Yeah, and some of those include providing nutrients, improving soil biology, stabilising topsoil and reducing erosion. It contributes to productivity and at the same time can reduce the need for expensive inputs. By reducing inputs and runoff, it's also really good for the environment.
4: It's not a question of whether it's beneficial, it's incredibly beneficial, but it is comes down to the economics of it, just don't stack up at the moment. So it's a very small, believe it or not, it's a very small fraction of the market.
2: So that sets the scene. Let's move to part one, closing the loop.
5: There's something like 50 to 60% of our agricultural land in Australia is classified as degraded.
1: Virginia Brunton is an environmental scientist and leads the organics team at MRA Consulting Group and she sees compost as a necessity to restore agricultural soils. There's
5: millions of hectares of agricultural land that needs compost, it needs organic matter. We've been farming these soils intensively for 200 years and in that time we've reduced levels of carbon, organic matter in soil, to below 2.5% threshold where they need organic matter to function properly
2: as virginia explains for many years scientists were focused on replacing nutrients in the soil that are lost in the process of growing and harvesting produce many farming practices are also leading to the loss of organic matter from the soil and that results in poor soil structure function and biology and the thing is this organic matter needs to be replaced too
5: You think of the net pull of everything out of soil, you know, into food, into humans, it just doesn't come back again. You know, it's just mining. We used to only think about it as mining nutrients out of soil. But effectively, you know, every time you turn a soil, every time you remove a crop, remove animals, you're taking away organic matter as well. That organic matter has been burnt by microbes to allow the nutrients to transition from soil into plants. So that needs replacing as well because that's the important thing. That's the, you know, the driver of the whole soil environment is that organic matter that feeds microbes so the microbes can do their thing in soil. Soil scientists really only considered NPK and all all the other minerals, the 13 essential plant elements. And they forgot about carbon or organic matter and really didn't investigate the role that that has in the whole system. So the more organic matter we can get out of landfill and turned into compost and onto agricultural land, the better.
2: With all the benefits, why aren't we heaping compost on every farm across the country?
1: Well, historically, one of the most important sources of organic waste are leftover food scraps and garden cuttings, has gone straight to landfill. But that's starting to change.
6: My name's Amanda Kane. I'm the organics manager at the New South Wales EPA and I look after our programme to get food and garden waste out of landfill. And there's been absolute shift like in the last probably five to ten years in terms of awareness of that understanding. The markets for compost made from curbside organics are increasing year on year, particularly in agriculture. In 2015 it was about 9% of the market, it's now risen to 16% of the market and increasing. That obviously is a really good outcome for that product if it goes back and helps our food grow.
5: Certainly over the last 20 years, a lot more commercial compost available in the market. The main suppliers in New South Wales have probably trebled their production in the last 10 years, principally as... Councils have adopted garden organics collections and then food and garden organics collections. And all the compost producers that I talk to can't produce enough. The demand for their product is increasing to the point where they don't have stockpiles and, you know, product is moving.
6: In the last eight years, we've been delivering a grant program to encourage councils to switch to source-separated FOGO food organics and garden organics, which is effectively um, just adding food waste to your existing garden waste collection on the curbside. The funding that we've been delivering has also been supporting new processing infrastructure. So we've been increasing the capacity of the industry to be able to take more curbside FOGO and we've also been funding the collection of more um, curbside services. So we've been increasing the supply, we've been increasing the processing capacity and we've also been supporting the market for the recycled product through our organics market development grants. So we've been funding a range of different projects through that projects that include things like using pelletised compost on farms, benefits of compost in sporting fields, roadside rehabilitation and mining, various other areas of market opportunity for compost.
2: OK, so commercial production of compost is increasing fast as councils adopt curbside collection of food and garden waste. So how does all this recycled waste actually get used on farms?
1: Well, the most common use of compost is simply spreading it on farmland in its solid form.
7: So my name is Phil Lavers, and I'm the owner of Moonacres Farm, which is in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales. We're an intensive horticulture farm, and we produce a very large range of fruit and vegetables. We start with apples and we end with zucchinis, so pretty much A to Z proud of the fact that we grow in a way that's nourishing the soil and uh, encouraging the microbiome to help the plants feed us. So the reason I use compost is because I think that the tilling of the soil effectively destroys a lot of the microbiome in the soil, or if it doesn't destroy it, it certainly sets it back. And so I want to do something that will actively assist that recovery of that microbiome and i think the way to do that is to use compost to feed the biome with readily digestible nutrients that it can then use to get itself going if you don't have the biome then the plants that you're going to end up with are not going to be as healthy as nutritious or as alive as if you do have a very active and alive microbiome in your soil
1: Phil's focus on the microbiology of the soil represents a deeper shift in mindset.
7: So it sort of depends on where you're coming from. If, you, if you're if you one of these farmers who just thinks all I need to get is the chemistry right and then I'll just plant the plants and away we go, then really compost is not for you. But if you're someone who thinks that you're part of a living system and that the microbes are crucial to the development of the plant, then compost is crucial because it assists in that regeneration of the microbiome following any tillage practice a great compost smells fantastic it smells earthy it's dark in color texture is spongy and i don't know it just feels alive (laughs) that's not a very good description but that's the way it feels there's times when i just want to eat it it really is that appealing it's i don't know it's so hard to describe it just seems to be full of energy. I mean, that's not very scientific, but when it turns up and I get a good batch, it's just really exciting for me to see it come out of the the B-double and to just be there ready to spread. Every single crop that we plant, and we plant a lot of crops, that vegetable bed gets some compost spread on it just before we do the planting of the vegetables into it. So we do our bed preparation and then we use a compost spreader to spread on each of those beds, say four handfuls of composts per square meter roughly. And as we're planting up the seedlings or whatever we're planting, that through the motion of the tractor implement that we use for the planting incorporates that compost into the soil and it's giving the soil a bit of microbiome feedstock, if you like, to then kick off the process of growing a microbiome around those plants, and we do that for literally everything we do.
2: Using compost in this way really fits with Phil's farming philosophy, but there are some practical barriers when it comes to incorporating bulk compost like this into your farming operation. The
7: biggest bottleneck to moving towards using something like compost in your system is to make sure that you're going to be able to sell what you produce and that you can find people who are prepared to pay for what you're doing the next challenge is to be able to find a reliable and high quality supplier of compost and there are some suppliers that i've worked in the past and the quality of their compost has been extremely poor you really got to make sure that you get good quality inputs, because if you get a load of, of bad quality compost, then you're going to be in trouble. And in fact, I think a good example of that is a lot of the municipal composts that the sort of green waste industry is, is pumping out. And I, I wouldn't buy that product because I'm really, really worried about microplastics contaminating my soil. Everyone can say that they do this, that, and the other thing, but the fact of the matter is that there have been a lot of product testing of those composts, and there's definitely microplastics in them. People, when they buy my produce, they test me by eating it. (laughs) And if they don't like it, they, they really let me know. So they actually put my produce under very intensive, very thorough, very sensitive chemical analysis when they stick it in their gob and eat it and so my produce is passing that test every day and if it doesn't pass that test i really want to know because i'm quite proud of how our produce tastes and i think i understand why our produce tastes so good
1: amanda kane explains that the new south wales epa is heavily focused on reducing
6: contamination certainly we absolutely want to have the cleanest stream possible with no contamination and when we're working with households we're finding generally that the green lid bin the organics bin is actually much less contaminated than the yellow bin because it's not as confusing for householders to understand what they can put into the green lid bin it's it tends to be by and large a cleaner stream but certainly plastics is the biggest challenge our ongoing education we'll be working with households to keep that plastics out but also you know with processes part of our grant program has included a product quality equipment which is about depackaging equipment you know making sure that any contaminants get taken out before it goes in through the processing system so certainly ensuring that we have a cleanest supply removing those contaminants beforehand or not getting them in in the first place is really important
8: it's imperative that anybody who's putting something into a bin as a clean recycle product understands where that product's going to be used.
1: That's Jerry Gillespie. For over 20 years, he has worked on a number of waste and recycling projects with local and state governments.
8: If you just give people like we used to do in state government all the time or local government, you just give people a stack of bins and don't keep supplying the information to keep them excited and involved in the process, they'll eventually get to a stage where they'll start putting bits and pieces in it. They're not as careful with plastic bags or they're not as careful with bottles. And you can't compost successfully within a compost process if you get more than 6% contamination in it. So you've got to spend an enormous amount of time and labour trying to get that crap back out of the process. So it's of no benefit to anyone to be making a poor quality product.
2: So we've heard a lot about microplastic contamination and microplastics aren't just a risk to human health. They can also affect soil structure and water flow and Microplastics aren't the only contaminants we need to worry about. In particular, there are some concerns about the risk of contamination with chemicals like PFAS, which are used in many goods, including household items, and that can impact humans and the environment and might pose a risk even in very small quantities.
1: And even if the industry is able to exclude or remove contaminants from the waste streams they're receiving, there's a broader issue with the quality of manufactured bulk composts.
5: AS 4454, the Australian standard for compost soils, conditions and mulches, is a voluntary standard for the production of composts that are essentially marketed to the public. It's, you know, a four tick that says this material is compost, it has these characteristics, this is what composting means. If it's just called pasteurised, this is what pasteurised means. It's not a quality standard, it's a production standard it's a processing standard it describes the limits of contamination and it describes how composts need to be made and I think the regulations surrounding the controls of the quality of compost in New South Wales are reasonable they don't confer too much overdue burden on the processes but just enough that the quality of the material being applied to land is sufficient that it doesn't cause pollution or harm.
2: So there is a regulated minimum standard for
3: any product labelled
2: compost.
1: But that standard doesn't guarantee quality from a producer's perspective.
3: The Australian standard of as 4454 is a very base standard of composting. So that really covers all your waste facilities. As long as they come in under that 4454 standard, they're okay. But we've got to remember that that standard has been put at a very low base for a reason. Otherwise, most of those facilities would not be able to receive what they receive. Uh, Even though a lot of the commercial composters now are trying very, very hard to lift their standard well above that. But it's still got to be remembered that that standard is a very low base standard.
5: Having said that, most of the compost manufacturers, certainly the large-scale ones, produce materials that go way beyond the quality limits set in AS4454. Most of them are producing a individually tailored compost, and that means that they've taken into account the fact that your pH is one thing and they can modify the pH using compost. They can add lime to it, for instance. Or they might be adding other trace elements, or they might be adding a whole bunch of anything, NPK for instance, that meets the needs of your particular crop in your particular situation.
2: Despite this, Rhonda Daly believes concerns about quality of compost products are still preventing adoption. Here we actually need to distinguish between different forms of compost because quality means different things for different composts. For bulk compost, which is what's produced by municipal waste processes, quality here means that it's free from contaminants and can effectively provide a carbon input to soils.
1: But when producers like Phil and Rhonda are talking about quality, they're looking for something more than that. They're looking for something that's fully broken down and biologically active, in order to more rapidly restore
0: soil function and health. It's gotta go back onto agricultural land, but to be taken up by a lot more farmers, knowing that when they put that on, they're going to get certain results, but it's gotta be a quality enough that it's going to drive the soils upwards and forwards rather than backwards. It's a bit like oils ain't oils, compost ain't compost. And anything from a manure turned twice or three times to our high quality humus compost is all called compost. In America, they call a manure that's been turned a few times processed manure. And people understand it, that it is a processed manure. It's not a compost. Whereas here in Australia, Uh, we can just turn a manure, because to make a compost, you need a 25 to 30 carbon to nitrogen ratio. And putting it in layman's terms, you have so much dry material and so much nitrogen or manures or green material that makes that cycle start. Well, if you've only just got a manure, it's a very high nitrogen content and they just turn it a few times to blow off some of the nitrogen and call it compost. But unfortunately, it's been used way, way way too much without the effects being known on the soil and i do believe that this is why there's not been a a greater uptake by farmers to utilize the compost that's been made here because they're not really sure of what they're getting
1: some say that the very nature of an industry which turns waste into compost makes it hard for that industry to produce a higher quality product let's hear from jerry gillespie
8: the problem that we have with the compost products is Compost is generally made by the waste industry as a waste reduction tool that's intended to get it through the process and out to a paddock somewhere as quickly as possible. Sales become the imperative because they've all got very expensive blocks of land in big cities in most instances.
2: Jerry's saying that this industry is first and foremost about waste management. It helps keep organic waste out of landfill where it would otherwise rot down, produce greenhouse gas emissions and generally create problems. Bulk compost is the end product of that industry. And they are working hard to make that a useful product that can be applied to farms to return organic matter to the soil.
1: This kind of compost is especially useful for smaller intensive production systems, including horticultural producers like Moon Acres Farm, who we spoke to earlier.
2: But there's another issue with bulk compost, which prevents other producers, especially broadacre farmers, from adopting it, and that's the cost of application.
5: The biggest cost in terms of recovering organics or getting them onto farm is actually in the processes. It's actually in turning it into compost um, or spreading it on farms. A recent project that I worked on looked at using compost that had been pelletized, which means that it's you know it looks a bit like you know what dynamic lifter looks like, little pellets, um, similar similar to that. And we looked at that because not only are the costs of spreading compost on farm high, but also farmers need the right equipment. So typically farmers have got a fertilizer spreader of some description, but to have a manure spreader, which is required for compost because it's wet and sticky and it doesn't flow the same way as fertilizers do. So the cost of application can be a limiting factor. So what we did. I partnered with one of the commercial composters and we pelletized some material. And we did what's called dropping it down the tube, you know, putting it along with an air seeder and direct drilling it when seed is sown. And not only did that remove the spreading activity altogether, but it made the application of compost one activity along with sowing. And the compost was placed right where the seed needed it, right next door. So it had quite a beneficial impact in reducing the costs of Um, compost application and I might say quite a significant impact on yield for that particular trial which surprised me you know when we run compost trials we may or may not get a demonstrated increase in yield and that typically is because crops are already growing as efficiently as they possibly can and adding some organic matter in the short term doesn't have a great deal of impact but in this case we got a quite a significant increase in yield from the application of compost So those sorts of innovations will make the use of compost easier and it means that the material is more stable, can be transported longer distances, can be stored. You know, you might not use it all at once, so it can be stored as you would store fertiliser. So those sorts of technical differences will make a difference to the amount of compost and the accessibility of compost for most farmers.
2: But even with innovations like these, spreading bulk compost over huge areas such as broadacre cropping lands or grazing lands presents challenges. So what can be done to make composting a more accessible and suitable solution for these agricultural lands?
1: Well, surprisingly, part of the answer might be lying on the side of the road. And let's find out exactly what that is.
8: I think the whole thing about compost is evolving. Science doesn't stand still, and we all end up standing on somebody else's shoulders to develop something a little further. The biggest single thing that's going to happen to agriculture, I think, in the next 10 years is biostimulants. A liquid product supplied as folias, it's already one of the largest movements. So, Jerry's
2: referring here to biostimulants, and what he means by that is usually distilled liquid forms of compost like compost teas and extracts the aim of these biostimulants is not to return organic matter to the soil like bulk compost but rather to stimulate biological activity in the soil for plant growth and for building soil health
8: our composting process is different i've always been really keen on trying to refine the process i developed a system that's based on the work of sir albert howard and a woman from the UK who was making compost during the Second World War called Mae Bruce. Basically, when humans eat food, you use the process of hydrolysis in your guts. It takes all the proteins you consume and pulls them apart to amino acids and peptides. And then your body decides whether it's gonna turn that into skin or fingernails or hair or whatever. Same thing with what we're doing. We're taking a protein source, whether that's mixed waste from general sort of production stuff, from households or or industry, can be a protein source of fish, roadkill, or a protein source like intestines from animal. That protein source, then we macerate it, we mix it with basically the same inoculant we use in the composting process, and then we add carbohydrate as a sugar source for an energy to run the entire process, and we leave it sit under a fermentation lock for four weeks at the end of that process you've got around about 20% solids and the rest of it's a highly valuable amino acid and peptide and many many people in agriculture are now becoming much more attuned to the idea that that you don't need a great deal of this product to actually make a big difference for example the Hecatees in um, Western Australia I think they're using something like 20 litres of compost tea product on about a tonne of seed before they put it into the ground and that's a completely different story because the seed sort of believes if you like that it's sitting in high quality soil and starts pumping exudates and as soon as it takes off they're getting phenomenal growth phenomenal crop results with very little added to anything except for either vermicast or compost
2: tea. Distilled compost extracts like those Jerry's describing are still an emerging product but they could solve many of the issues that make bulk compost less suitable for broadacre farms.
1: Rhonda and Bill Daly's mixed farming enterprise includes broadacre cropping and grazing, and they were pioneers in the use of compost extracts, which they refer to as humus extract.
0: The technology for the humus extract actually came from America, from our manufacturer and supplier of the composting equipment. We had been brewing compost tea up until this time in our journey since 2006, and we perfected the production of this high-quality humus compost in that stable state. So when you put it through the extraction unit, then you've now made it into a liquid state. You put in, say, 35 kgs of the compost, and it makes 2000 litres and can be done, you know, very easily by farmers themselves. And then of course the uses for liquid are quite wide and varied and many farmers who call us or are changing methods, they're wanting to look at ways that they can get more microbial diversity into their soils. So one of the things I love, probably the best is the liquid injection where you put 50 to 100 liters of the humus extract down into the furrow with the seed and the fertilizer. And as you know, through photosynthetic activity, then the plant feeds all these beautiful sugars down into the root zone. And you've just put a whole lot of microbes and humus polymers into this area. They get the feed and then obviously, they're gonna have a party down there. There's sugars and cakes and bickies and and they're gonna have this beautiful party there. And they increase by number. Well, what happens when we get lots of beneficial microbes around the root zone? We don't get root disease. You know, we don't get fungal diseases. We don't get sclerotinia. we don't get black leg. You know, we don't get all of those diseases. And then, of course, because the plant is extracting the minerals from the soil due to microbial plant and root uh, interaction, then they're getting the nutrients in the proper amounts that they need. They're not being supplied chemical synthetic fertilizers. So then you end up with a healthier plant that obviously can resist pests as well. So that's probably one of the first areas where you could use it. Now, not everyone's set up for liquid inject, but another area is you could spray it onto the soil and then the next area would be as a foliar fertiliser, so on pastures or on crops. So you're going in, once again, at that 50 to 100 litres to the hectare and normally where you'll get your biggest bang for your buck, so autumn or springtime. Now, if you've got a soil and 99% of Australian soils are low in zinc, copper and boron, then you can add those trace minerals to this humus extract. So not only are you getting you know, all of the benefits of the microbial diversity and the humus polymer, but you're getting minerals then into the plant as well. So as a foliar fertiliser, it's huge. Horticulture, viticulture do then what we call fertigation. They drip it around the roots of the plant.
2: With these new approaches, a wide range of other organic wastes, which have historically been seen as uneconomic, could potentially be turned into a valuable and economically viable compost extract product. Here's Gerry again.
8: We've got this project going that started this whole feral animals thing of trying to convert feral pigs up in Cape York into a liquid product. We know if we could sell that liquid product to farmers at $3 a litre, we could pay the person who shot the pig a dollar a kilo. That's a revolution. But we could take that all over the country. I mean, we've got 7 million donkeys, a million horses, roughly about a million camels. They think there's 10 million pigs in the Cape York area alone. We've got carp in the river systems, rabbits, foxes. All of those things can be converted into foliar fertiliser. And then you've got food waste and increasing the efficiency of agricultural production. So we've got enough sources of product to totally replace the chemical fertiliser we use
2: on our farm. A quick explainer here, bulk composts do provide some nitrogen which can reduce the need for synthetic fertiliser, but the amount of nitrogen in bulk compost varies depending on the feedstock. Wood for example is low in nitrogen, while food scraps are generally higher. Animal carcasses are much higher again in nitrogen, meaning that they might be a much more significant option for replacing synthetic fertiliser use. One
8: of the interesting things about people culling kangaroos in this area around here New South Wales has changed the regulations in terms of how many kangaroos people can shoot. Again, it's a circumstance where you've taken the life of a sentient being. It makes no sense to just leave it lying in a paddock. Some people at that stage were looking at how they could commercialise the use of the meat from those kangaroos, but the problem that they had was there is really not sufficient value in the carcass of a kangaroo to make it valuable enough to put through an abattoir. However, if you take the gut, the intestinal material of the, the animal and make a hydrolysate from it, it'll push the value up from about, I would argue, from probably somewhere around $20, $25 up to about $45 because you can sell the hydrolysate, the liquid product for, I would think, easily 4 or $5 because it's comparable to products like Charlie Carp or Sea salt. So there are other options rather than just straight composting of animals. Many years ago, I remember hearing people discuss the options in, in regard to roadkill. When I was a New South Wales government employee, tried to get roadkill picked up and taken to a composting site, where we, we were running our composting process rather than seeing the things go to landfill. Because every time they went to landfill, it cost the council $40 to get rid of the carcass. It took two staff, they had to get, then take the ute somewhere to wash all the blood out and all the various other things that just seemed idiotic that they'd do that when they could get them back into agriculture. The whole principle of composting animals is, is based on a quaint term the Americans have been doing for many years in, in large agricultural programs. It's called mort composting, M-O-R-T, as in body. And very, very simply, they just put down sawdust, a layer of animals, a layer of sawdust, a layer of animals until you run out of animals. And then you just leave it for as long as you possibly could and you get a really high quality product.
2: For farms that aren't close to urban centres, some of these techniques provide the option to actually make the compost themselves on site. And this offers lower costs and greater control. Farmers, they
8: see themselves as growers of product or growers of crops, not fertiliser producers. They see that as sort of independent business. But their stuff is so easy to make. I mean, it will take you probably a half hour, a month, to make a thousand litres in an IBC, in a 1000 litre container. And I say to farmers if you're gonna make compost or whatever, Or hydrolysates, just make what you need for every three months or so if you're worried about it going off. It's very, very simple to make a small quantity of something and do a relatively small part of a paddock. But keep in mind too that if you're making a protein hydrolysate, the reason why it's safe to use after you put it through the hydrolysis process is because its pH will drop down to about 4.5 or even lower. So it's very acidic. For all sorts of different reasons, you should be applying it at about 200 to 1. So very, very dilute.
1: Virginia Brunton believes that for many farmers and those who advise them, making compost requires a shift in mindset as well as learning a new set of skills.
5: There's a big gap, I think, between the way farmers think and see the world and the way scientists working with farmers think and see the world. And particularly when you're trying to translate something like the benefits of compost to a farmer, Because there's no one thing that is compost, unlike ammonium phosphate, ammonium nitrate, put ammonium nitrate on the ground and certain things happen, you know, crops grow. But you put compost onto a farm and you're dealing with compost that is inherently variable. No two composts are the same in the same way as no two farms are the same. No two patches of soil on a farm is the same. So when you're trying to move from something that farmers are really familiar with then PK equals crop growth into compost equals crop growth, you've got a lot more variables to deal with and a lot more uncertainty and sometimes it takes a leap of faith and all the, the work that I've been trying to do over the last you know, 20 years or so is to stop it being a leap of faith and have it much more as evidence and experience. I start the conversation with farmers about compost and organic matter, talking about NPK, because that's what they're used to. And it pretty quickly moves on to talking about carbon, because the way I look at compost is it's a source of organic matter. It's the source of organic matter for soils. Nowhere else can you go and buy carbon. You can buy N and P and K in various sorts of forms. But go down to Elders and try and buy carbon, it doesn't come in a bag unless it comes as organic matter. So when I talk about composts, the conversation starts with MPK and then C. And I think the carbon in the organic matter is the essential ingredient. But largely, farmers are farmers and not composters. Compost itself is is a whole new set of skills. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's easier for farmers to just push it aside and you know, just let it degrade by itself, which essentially is, you know, a waste of organic matter. And then there are groups of farmers that are banding together and, you know, sharing resources and all learning how to compost on farm. And provided that's done effectively and well so that there's not pathogens or any toxins within the the composting material that does harm after it's composted, then I think that's a, a fantastic thing.
1: Rhonda and Bill have been teaching farmers to make compost for over 15 years and believe that essentially anyone can do it with the right
0: technology, processes and training. One tonne of compost produces 35,000 litres of humus extract, so like 0.06 cents a litre to produce. They use their own water, there's no transporting of water. So they have a unit, they have the humus compost and then they can do it when they want. So it's also a stable product. So until you activate it, unlike a brewing, you know, when you brew, you've got to use it within 24 hours or they all start eating themselves. This is stable. So you can then choose to activate it and use it when you want to. So to me, I think time is everyone's enemy at the moment. Everyone seems short of time. And so for farmers to be able to reduce their amount of time in producing this, you know, one big thing of changing from a conventional system into a biological is, it seems to the conventional farmer, so much more fussy. You know, there's much more things to do. You've got to think more, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So I think we've got to streamline it and simplify it as much as we can. And by using the humus extract, they can do it on farm and really easily and efficiently.
2: So what can governments do to support the wider use of compost in all their forms? In the first part of this episode, we talked about bulk compost and we heard from Amanda Kane about the range of programs that are essentially focused on boosting supply of mostly household and commercial organic waste and making sure they can be safely returned to farms in the form of bulk compost. Virginia Brunton believes we can do more on this front.
5: I would like to see FOGO, Food and Garden Organics Collection Services, mandated across Australia for every household. Somehow Sons in Australia don't even have a garden organics collection service, let alone a food and garden organics collection service. I would also like to see bans on organics to landfill and I would like to see mandated commercial food waste collection. I see all the effort needs to go into getting food, primarily food, uh, but other organic wastes back into circulation as opposed to, you know, this end of pipe um, mentality where they just end up in landfill or in water or lost to an agricultural system. It's just crucial that we get nutrients and carbon back into agricultural soils in Australia.
1: The Federal Government has a National Waste Strategy and Action Plan where all states and territories have committed to halving the amount of organic waste sent to landfill by 2030. Some states and territories are going further, with New South Wales the first state to mandate separated collection services for FOGO
6: for all households. And it includes a new requirement for all councils to provide households with source separation of food waste by 2030 and for large food waste generating businesses to be source separating by 2025. So the mandate is now in place and part of our job and our programme is to help Both households and businesses make that happen, to produce a clean stream that can then take that food waste and turn it into something valuable, which is, of course, compost.
2: In part two, we heard about the new and emerging area of compost extracts. Like any new innovation, government support can help accelerate its development.
1: And this includes more investment in science and research to better understand the role of composts in stimulating soil microbiology and the resulting impacts on plant health and productivity. The main gap in our understanding about the
5: benefits or the mechanisms about compost lies in the fact that we don't understand enough about the soil organisms and what they do in soil historically soil was just thought of as being a vessel that holds nutrients in order for plants to suck it up out of their roots it wasn't really historically in the mpk think considered that microbial activity in the soil is actually essential for that nutrient exchange and for the health of plants but the more microbiologists start to look at soil the more they realize how important that exchange that mechanism that link that microbes make between soil nutrients water and the plant roots and science is now only really coming to understand the importance of that relationship so compost is a really complex beast and when it interacts with plants and soil and crops all sorts of things happen
2: (laughs) more broadly better information and more research is needed to help farmers distinguish between the quality and the benefits of different types of compost and compost-derived products like teas and extracts.
0: Farmers who are buying it need to know which one, why are they buying this, you know, what are the benefits to it? And so it's about knowing if a cheap compost is going to do the job they want. And very much in this extraction technology and innovation, the quality of what you put in So you can't put garbage in and expect quality out. So if you're going to do an unbroken down compost in, then you're going to get very varying results. And I believe that this whole industry will probably only really get adopted by a lot of people when there's a little bit more legislation around it, a little bit more quality parameters around it. I think I believe I'm only here after you know 19 years is because we've had results. I'm not funded by anyone, you know, so I don't get government funding. And if our farmers weren't getting the beneficial results, I wouldn't be here this, this time on. And I truly believe that, you know, anyone selling into this market has got to back their product.
1: Looking to the future, Jerry Gillespie and Rhonda Daly both see composting as just one part of a broader shift towards regenerative approaches to farming.
8: I think the combination of hydrolysates and what we can now do with compost, I think we're just about to totally revolutionise the way that we look at agriculture because we've got people now who are doing that, who've totally eliminated the use of chemicals and they're farming on 10,000 acres, so they're big even by our standards. But it also means... As the farmer pointed out to me, the benefit from from his perspective is when he looks over the neighbour's fence, he knows he's farming for about $105 an acre less than that person. So he's much more competitive. The regenerative agriculture movement, very broad term. To me, it just means changing the way we farm, cutting the costs of farming. We need to reduce the input costs of agriculture. There's a Canadian economist who says that in his country, and this is probably true around the rest of the world, most farming families survive on 5 to 10% of their total output. So they ride this razor blade all the time. And with climate change coming, it's going to be so easy to push them off the razor blade. And, and if we lose them, we lose our food production system. So the importance of getting them to change and the importance of reducing costs for them is the biggest imperative in the entire thing, I think. So there, there are just so many different angles to the idea of changing the way that we farm and changing the desire in farmers to actually do better and to leave their kids something a little marginally better. Well, I don't think that necessarily with farmers that's driven by greed. I think it's just driven by people giving them the wrong instructions in terms of how to make the system work. But it's not particularly their fault. It's the only option they're given by the stupidity of the agricultural education that goes into it in the first place. What's happened to agricultural extension in this country? I I know of a few people who are doing extension, but it's coming from the private sector or from individuals, not from government-led initiatives. I mean, there's nobody out there, as far as I know, in extension who are talking about the whole soils for life perspective. I think we're on the right track. We've got a lot, lot, lot more action than we've ever had before. But I think it's got to start with a farm. And I have farmers everywhere now using the base inoculant as a foliar or the base simple hydrolysate as a foliar. What's happening in that process, though, is they're conceding that what they need to do is start looking after the microbial activity of the soil. And the, the best bloody thing you can do for the microbial activity of the soil if you weren't farming it is just to leave it alone. Stop killing it. That's the best thing. But if you're going to sort of start driving it so you want to grow food in it, then yeah, use products like this, but once you've made the concession in your head that the process is biological, then just the fact that you're initiating the process by making a product that's going to actually stimulate that biological function, you're there.
0: Look, we did terrible damage on our farm. Like, I mean, bad damage, like everyone else. We thought we were good farmers, but now we have a legacy to take forward and to change things. When we hold workshops and field days, I say I create toolboxes for people. And I think it's that education and that knowledge that you provide, you provide them with self-confidence and self-empowerment that they know they can go away and change it a bit up. I've had so many farmers saying that that was the best thing in their life. You know, they've been conventionally farming and basically sick of it, just chemicals, chemicals. And they say, it gave me a reason to farm again. Because this is not based on fear. Fear of disease, fear of pests, fear of everything. Whereas when you get biological or regenerative, you're looking for hope. You know, there's a better way of doing things. And I believe that's why people's well being starts to feel good again.
2: Wow, there's so much to digest in that episode. We've got Source for Life CEO Liz Clark here.
9: Hi, Liz. What did you take away from the episode? Well, first of all, I think it's a great podcast. I think you've really nailed a very complex subject. I think it highlights one of the underlying themes of regenerative approaches is that you're always dealing with complexity. So the experience of the farmers that we talk to in our network is that in some ways dealing with that complexity makes life simpler, which seems like a contradiction in terms. But what's actually happening is you're doing less to allow the system to do more. And that has all sorts of implications for workload, for costs. So you're driving down costs. You're enhancing natural processes to drive your productive system. So you're thinking about how you're building those processes rather than thinking about putting ingredients in a cake so i think that term leverage is a really useful one in talking about agroecological systems because you're not controlling it you don't have control you have mastery and you leverage the processes so it's a totally different mindset
2: you know there are lots of different types of compost that we talk about in this episode but at its essence what do you think compost is
9: i'm a bit of a um, etymology nerd so the etymology of compost. It comes from the Latin root, composita, which means broadly speaking, things put together. It also relates back to the idea of decomposition. So compost only works if there's bugs. So it's a process of decomposition and it's stuff put together.
2: So Liz, what does all that mean for policy? What do policymakers need to take away from this and learn and bring into their work?
9: This presents a really interesting and complex policy challenge. And it's really about working out which levers to pull. Now, there's a measure in the National Soil Strategy for turning food waste, taking it back to farms. And I think the key to solving that particular policy puzzle is not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. We're going to need to have adaptive approaches that fit the situation. The key to good policy in this space is going to be enabling the innovation that's already happening. So, we heard about dairy and the feral animals. Rhonda's teaching farmers how to make their own compost locally. The key to getting good policy solutions will be to enable those innovators. There's also a need to invest in research to better understand how compost and compost products are influencing biological and other processes in a farming system, particularly soil biology and some of the agroecological cycles that drive productive systems. And it's about shifting our mindset and the way we talk about farm inputs and farm processes to thinking more about how we enable processes that are already happening on the farm and enhance them rather than thinking about a farm as a factory. I think it's the same with any complex process. You need multiple solutions from different perspectives. So you need a very distributed and connected approach. You're sharing information, you're doing research, you're providing incentives, and you're just enabling people who are gonna do it anyway to do it faster and bigger. So we need a broader approach to driving policy about turning waste into compost and putting it back on farms.
1: This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Programme. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes, sign up to the Soils for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.